Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This episode has been recorded at BreakoutCon 2018, Toronto's premier tabletop gaming convention for board games and role-playing games. This recording has been made possible thanks to the organizers of BreakoutCon and the fine contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 151, Crafting the Experience at the Table. Presented by Rachel Kahn, Mark Richardson, Daniel Kwan, and Alex Roberts. Moderated by Phil Vecchione. I'm a uh, RPG designer and cartographer. Uh, I do professional map design in my day job, and I started to foolishly do that for other people's games in my own. Um, and then uh, they were really popular, so now I'm doing the cartography. I'm doing all the maps for the 7C Second Edition, uh, as well as a bunch of other projects. And I guess I'm here to talk about ways you can use maps or bigger design things in games. Um, and I love to make extra shit for one shots and stuff like that. Way more work than it is ever justified. <laughs> my name is Rachel Kahn, and uh, indeed this panel is my fault. This is a thing I've been thinking about a lot. I'm an illustrator for games, so I come in and I do the art that you see in game books or on decks of cards. And so that got me thinking a lot about how are those actually used at the table. And when I started writing some adventures, I started thinking about ways to bring my art to the table uh, in tactile and satisfying ways. Um, I have also worked as an educator who uses games at the Agacon Museum, where I definitely had a stress test a week-long game session with 9- to 12-year-olds that taught me a lot about the power of giving them a craft or helping them use crafts to understand what they're doing in-game. I'm Daniel Kwan. I am an archaeologist and teacher based here. Uh, I guess I'm on this panel to talk about gaming with kids and people on the spectrum. I, uh, I'm also a game designer. My first game, uh, Ross Rifles, is going to be kickstarted in November this year. It's a World War One RPG about sort of Canadians fighting in France. Uh, I also work at the Royal Ontario Museum as a teacher and as a researcher. I, uh, I run their Dungeons and Dragons program, and I've been working with kids in gaming since 2005, and I've been running that program since 2011. So I think at this point, I've taught easily over 2,000 kids how to play D&D. Um, so I'm here to share my experience you know, working with young people. All right. So that's our that's our interest. So we're talking about. Uh, things that kind of go beyond the normal rule books, dice, and things like that. Uh, ways to uh, enhance games, and I, I think it's open to say ways that um, that designers do this, but it also is ways as GMs can do this as well, like to, things that are done outside of what designers normally do. Um, Alex, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, for Starcross, do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, Jenga Tower? Totally. Um, so uh, Starcrossed, you won't be surprised to hear, was uh, very, very much inspired by when I played Dread, um, which is a horror role-playing system that uses the Jenga Tower, and uh, very, very successfully evokes a sense of, you know, Dread. Uh, it, it makes you a little bit afraid. It gives you a certain physiological reaction when there's this swaying tower. and 
uh, I think what's really clever about the mechanic is that it's actually earned over time. So the tower starts out pretty stable at first, uh, and it doesn't take up a lot of your attention. But as more and more people pull from it, um, it eventually commands a lot of attention at the table. Right by the end of a game of dread, people are like this, and they do not want it to fall because if the tower falls, um, you die <laughs> in dread. Um, but it seemed to me like that physiological reaction of your heart beating a little faster and you being very careful in your movements and very self-conscious of how you are moving also felt a lot like when you see someone that you think is real cute. Um, and so I became very interested in other ways to elicit emotion using the same mechanic. And so far it's been very effective. <laughs> I, I think one of my favorites is uh, in Starcross, if you want to talk to to the other person, you have to physically touch the tower and stay touching it, um, which is utterly nerve-wracking. <laughs> it ended my first game of Starcross in after 15 minutes. Embarrassing. I, I, I lucked out because we had a pole that didn't um, go well, and I let go, and it was like partially sticking out, and so we were able to keep putting our finger on it, and it was like <laughs> stable enough. I was I wasn't smart because instead of touching the side of the tower, I was holding onto the top oh. to be dramatic, and we got so into the role play that I. I went like this, and I pulled the tower over. <laughs> so, uh, doesn't that sound a lot like a first date? Um, <laughs> I was nervous, and I, I wasn't thinking, and I was just so overwhelmed by the emotion of the situation, I made kind of a fool of myself, but I had a lot of fun. Um, that's, that's what I want you to come away from this game with. And uh, I'm definitely working on ways to... Uh, to be able to play the game without the tower if you needed to. You know, Dread has dice rules, and I would love to have some other mechanic that made it more accessible to people, for example, who have hand tremors or other like mobility issues. But, um, but, man, <laughs> it's effective. Mark, how about maps? Do you want to talk about? Um... Well, I also, I should say, uh, like, I've also designed a game, Headspace, and I'm working on another game, Treads, which are both have very tactical, tactile elements um, to go along the similar theme that you, you were talking about in terms of, like, one of the, I've, I've given a lot of thought in game design about character sheets and things like this and the worksheets we use, which are really, they're the graphical user interface in which we interact with the game, you know, like, the, the person running the game has the book with the rules, but your impression and how you interact with this world is entirely with the things that you have in front of you. And so most commonly, this is your imagination and the imaginations of other people. But sometimes, especially in more complex settings, you need sort of the physical things that explain what's going on. Or you need, you want, like the purpose of a map, in my mind, in most games, is to provide a jumping off point for your own creativity. You know, it, it, it's so that you don't have to think about what you want to do, you go, you look at something and you go, hey, that's really interesting. Uh, let's make today's story about this volcano on this mysterious rocky island. Or let's, uh, I don't know, like I was playing Headspace last night and I'm like, I put a lot of little inconsistencies in maps and, and strange little features because I want things that will quickly attract people's attention as like, oh, here's this isolated little building. Why is this different color? Well, it's a different color because the corporate uh, reclamation zone is, this is the new part. And so this is where the evil thing is happening or what have you. And I mean, we're all very, um, uh, and so like, uh, like with Headspace, I, I did a character sheet for the party um, that sits in the middle of the table, and that was really effective. And so in my follow-up game, Treads, 
which has nothing to do with cyberpunk, um, there's a like a representation of the party's tank in the middle of the table. Um, yeah, so like I, I feel like there's a lot of help that can be had at the table by centering people's attention on on other things than 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 just what people are talking about. So like I said, I come in as an illustrator, and certainly as somebody who draws a lot for games, there's a part of your brain that is like, I hope somebody cares about this drawing, um, or I hope this drawing is doing something. And then like, oh god, what is this drawing doing? Um, so thinking a lot about how art in rule books and stuff can become this sort of agreed upon, like common starting point for tone, for which characters are going to be present, and for what they look like, um, for props and objects for like, oh, there's a castle in the background. We're going to be in a place with a castle. Oh, this person is a wolf. Okay, it's wolf time. Um, but going beyond that, thinking about stuff as somebody who wants to sort of make games uh, and bring things to the table beyond just the rule book that the GM is using and maybe not actually showing the rest of the players. Um, I had the good luck to be in a group with another artist and he would always make us these wonderful little like on the spur of the moment, like little art cards being like, here's the potion you got. It's a drawing of a weird little bottle and it says potion on it. Um, and then you hold that and it becomes this tactile ownership of something that becomes a, a plot point, even if it wasn't initially significant because it, it's a physical object. So when I designed my first adventure, I wanted to make physical objects that helped you go to the place that I took you in the book. So I, I like zines a lot, so I made a little zine. Um, and I made it the size so that it would fit in a pencil case. And then I made a reference of the island that you're on from the side, the view you might see on the boat coming up, and then a top down. Not for tactical purposes at all, these are way too small to be tactical. Um, but for setting the mood and for giving people a way to say, I'm gonna go look at that interesting thing on the map, just like Mark said. Like creating points of interest, creating questions that people can have. So instead of being like, okay, the island is an island, you can be like, okay, it's tall, it sticks out of the ground, it's covered in verdant green, and there's forests, and there's a thing, and there's crystals underneath it. Then that that jump starts a lot of stuff at the table. And so I've been thinking a lot now about sort of like the tactile experience of having these things, and like what's the difference between something that feels disposable, like a little quick sketch to be like, this is the potion you have, when you use it, you throw it out. Um, whereas something that feels almost like the map your characters might have and trying to think about how to be immersive in a way with the props that isn't isn't so cheesy it knocks people out of the game but gives them a chance to focus into the, the fiction more. So that's where my head's at these days. I'm definitely not an artist. Um, but I think I get this unique perspective on you know enhancing the tabletop and enhancing the tabletop experience just because you know, I'm inside a museum. So if we're playing and we're talking about tombs and you're actually going to you know, encounter like a mummy in D&D, well, why don't we go play D&D next to a real mummy inside a replica of a tomb? Now, all of us here, none of us here are between the ages of 10 to 14, so you can't do that with me. Uh, but you could go to the ROM to play D&D. Um, people would just think you're taking up space on the floor. Um, but, you know, because I game with kids and because, you know, I make my livelihood is gaming with kids, you know, Keeping them engaged, not only for the, the amazing positive aspects of the game is important, but also keeping them engaged so that they want to come back. So they want to continue to learn, and they want to continue to you know, help my program you know, survive. And one of the things, you mentioned cards. Yeah. I can't make my own cards. I mean, I could, but they wouldn't be that engaging to a 10-year-old. They'd be rather ugly. 
Um, and this is like, I brought this one tool because I use it in almost every game I play. Um, and it's called the Index Card RPG. I talked about it on the GM Masterclass panel yesterday. And actually one of the lovely volunteers who's here uh, was in my game of Dungeon World. And we used this for basically the entire game. And uh, you can buy it on a drive-thru RPG. Uh, I definitely didn't make it. But you get 100 Index Cards with little features. And it's, it's system agnostic, just, just like your zine. Which I own a copy, it's awesome. Um, but I use these and I just lay them out on a table. I can create a map or a flow or even a small town centered around, say, a statue. And it gives the players something, like you said, to kind of vibe off of, something that might not have been important that they can latch onto. And as a GM, it gives you an opportunity to see where the players are interested. Because if you're using that, the theater of the imagination and you're not you know, giving something, you're not actually giving yourself an opportunity to see what the players are interested in. Yeah, it creates that dialogue. It creates be a dialogue, like, Ooh, yeah. that, yes, there, I want to go there. Exactly, so then you say, oh, okay, I didn't plan that, but let's go where your interest is. And if you're really into miniatures as well, or if you're playing with people who are into miniatures, you could still use these. You could say, well, if you're in the town, who's by the statue? Put your mini on the statue. Who's in the inn? Put your mini on the inn. Um, I'm also a big fan of grids, but that's pretty traditional, and most people know about that already. We can still talk about it. Well, we can it. definitely yeah. still talk about it. <laughs> it's definitely in this category, using a grid map. And you use uh, you use terrain sometimes, too. I use terrain, yeah. I, um, I have a giant uh, seven-foot by seven-foot Warhammer terrain that I won when I was 12 years old in a contest, like a draw. <laughs> and I have, I spent hours making these paper-crafted, um, like towers and, and buildings, and I created a village. Um, and I had this one campaign, and all 30 of my participants in my program were in it. I don't DM all 30 of them, I have also a staff of four or five. And all of our campaigns were centered around this one town. And we had this terrain map at the center of the room, and all of our tables were around it, and we had our minis in the town. And we had all of our small little games going on, and as the plot progressed, the town evolved and people can change it. And we ultimately added things like fallen buildings were just like a stack of pencils. Um, <laughs> but it gave everybody something to relate to and something that they could track the narrative by. Especially because if you're, if you're 10 and you're playing D&D every day for two weeks or five weeks, yeah. uh, you tend to forget things. Totally. I, I really want to jump on that um, and just add to that that when it comes to things like terrain and minis and that kind of thing, um, you can fall into the, the assumption that you have to consume those things. You know, you have to buy ones that um, that were made by someone else and they should be like fancy and they should whatever. And if that's your jam and you just love the mini for what the mini is and uh, as a work of art, that's totally awesome. But, you know, really the function of something like that is just so you know what your options are. Right, you as a player don't have to keep less information in your head if some of it is made obvious uh, or you know made tangible. And I really, really love when people just make little fold-up guys or little little um, doodles of your character or yeah, a pile of pencils being like some debris or um, so. These things can be useful even if they don't look like some cool, brilliant professional made them. Fully and completely, yes, yeah. And Absolutely. like if you look at it from like my bleary-eyed map design perspective, like scale 
And like a lot of what we're talking about when you're using different tools is the scale at which you're trying to tell this particular story or what's going on. So like if you look, like if you get really, really, really close to something, you're talking about like what's going on inside the tavern. Well, then we have tables and chairs and people, but we still need to figure out what that is. So we may put certain things down on this table representing other things, but then well, then the fight spills out into the city's streets and we're chasing after the thief who stole the bartenders, whatever. And so now we're doing, uh, maybe it's more narrative and we're doing this, but we still have to keep track of where we are in the city. So we start doing like, well, here's where you were from and this is where people are going. And then you let people create things and, and or put cards in the table. And then you can pull that scale, ratchet that up even more. And now you're looking at like, well, what's going on in the whole city? Where, what are districts and neighborhoods? What kind of cultures are being involved in this story? You know who's being impacted and what what's happening from from the things that are going on and then you blow back up from that even and all of those stories and ideas become a single point of insignificance in the grand scheme of things and now you're at like a continental level where it's nations and superpowers and the things that separate these things are massive bodies of waters extra dimensional portals and mountain ranges you know um the uh you you can these are all interchangeable and if you're playing like a political game you may start at one and go down and if you're playing like a little like a party D D game you're more likely to be on another side of that scale and maybe go up or back and forth um and all we're really doing is like if you if you think about it you're you're, you're kind of like looking at like with these bizarre binoculars at your table and kind of zooming in and zooming out of the action trying to keep it together so everyone can follow. And that's a really useful thing to be able to say, this is the scale of the story we're telling right now, and it's an entire world, and this is the scale of the story we're telling right now, and it's a community, it's a city, it's a it's a piece of, like a settlement with, you know, we're talking about like a million people instead of billions of people, or we're talking about the tavern with four people in it instead of millions of people. Um, and being able to communicate that in a nonverbal manner at the table so that people can keep reminding themselves of that, especially people, especially working with kids who just don't have the focus yet, they're learning it at the table, it speeds it up, it smooths the way. I was gonna tack on to something that Alex said and ask, and ask all of you to talk about, but the idea of, um, I, I typically use the term cognitive load, so that um, yeah. you know, one of the things that I've always found that when I put down reference sheets or maps or things like that is that you're offloading some of the cognitive load of the game to things that can be referenced, which then like frees up attention for, you know, more in-depth character. What's been your experiences? I, I especially if we can start it with Daniel, talk about it with kids. Sure. Like, how does that? Like, have you noticed anything in that respect? Definitely. I mean, I, you. I don't have to. Uh, well, I guess, like in Ross Rifles, which, which I co-wrote with with two of my very good friends, Patrick and Daniel. Same names. It's weird. Um, one of the things that we actually wrote the game in response to not having a World War One game to be able to use at the ROM. Uh, one of the things that we use in the game is we use little glass beads and we call them threat points and threat tokens. And they're kind of a tangible reminder of the GM's ability to do terrible things to you. To <laughs> unleash a gas attack on you. Um, a sniper, a tank. Uh, although World War One tanks were not as nice as those World War Two tanks. Um, but they're a reminder to the players that the GM is capable of doing something really terrible, but also really interesting to the story. Um, but also a reminder to the GM that they don't constantly have to think, okay, I have to do something bad, I have to do something bad, or I have to do something interesting. 
Well, they don't have to take the time to telegraph it. Exactly. Like you would in like, a, right like a dungeon where you're like, ooh, it's very spooky here. You walked into a bad place. It smells bad. Don't do it. Don't open that door. Right? You're like, no, you're in a war scenario. This is the threat. It's constant. It's visible. Mm-hmm. Everyone at the table can see it. You've all agreed upon it. And it creates that, like, for, for lack of a better word, and I'm sorry, Alexa, that tension. <laughs> <laughs> it creates that tension at the table. And that's occurred in all of all of the games that we played. And not just because of, you know, the GM's ability to describe, because not all GMs have the same skills. But because of that little tool that costs like 50 cents. And I, I think this is important because we talked earlier about the way that um, the way that tangible objects can represent the facts of the situation, right? Like how big is this place? What are the things in it? Yeah. Um, but the the objects at the table can also keep in mind and keep a constant reminder of the players of what is the tone of this game? What is the feel of this game? Like when you look at these two maps, for example, and, and Rachel's uh, map, which is very representational, like this, you know, is like a super realistic, uh, There's, it's mostly water, like what does that tell you about the game? Hmm, you're probably gonna be on a ship at some point. You know, when you look at this map for a cyberpunk game, like you will not confuse this for a non-cyberpunk setting, you know? Um, and so it, Maybe you don't have to be reminded of the fact that you are playing a cyberpunk game, but it keeps you in this mode of that's where you are. It keeps you in the in the aesthetic space of that. Um, a game that I'm currently uh, very, very into and playing a lot of is a 2002 board game called the Mary-Kate and Ashley Friendship Connection. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when you do certain things, you get an accessory. And from a certain game design perspective, you could say, well, you could just get a point, and the first person to five or six points wins. But instead of getting a point, you get to pick an accessory from the pile of accessories. (laughs) And over the course of the game, you make a little outfit. And that might seem spurious, maybe, but it's different because then you look around the game, you can look around the table and see how many points everyone has, so you know your odds of winning. But also, the act of taking a little accessory is very different um, than just ticking off a point. And it keeps you in the headspace of playing this girly game. Play, you know, you're playing a game that was made for 12 year old girls and it kind of puts you in the headspace of a 12 year old girl. And uh, that's very special and fun. <laughs> I want to live in the world where Bully Pulpit acquires the IP rights to Mary Cat and Ashley's uh, adventure game. Just, just saying. Just saying. Like, I don't. Just get, just get Alex on it. Just because I want to see Jason explain that. Um, uh, yeah, I was actually going to go uh, duplicitous here. Like, so you're providing information to people. That's what all of these things are. Yeah. You don't have to be telling them the, the actual truth. Um, and so depending on the kind of game environment you're creating, you can provide false information, directly misleading information, or information that doesn't explain everything. Um, you, uh, and I don't mean this because you want to be a dick, you know, or maybe you do, but like, um, I mean, it can be, and it, it can be really simple things that don't cost anything. Like I ran a Battlestar Galactica scenario that used drag, and at the beginning of the game, I took a bunch of cards and... I shuffled them up and passed them out secretly to everybody, but everybody saw that they got one, and the card said, you know, as far as you know, you're not a Cylon, you know, uh, you know, carry on kind of thing. Um, but by the act of shuffling it up, 
And they all said the exact same thing. Um, none of them said, you are a Scion. But by the very act of shuffling them up and explicitly saying, you cannot show this to anyone, um, it meant that they all assumed someone there was a Scion. Um, and so you can do things like that. You, if you're doing maps, uh, like some of the things, because I go bonkers with maps for my home groups, I ran a, I did a, a Fallout-style kind of post-apocalyptic game, and I provided two maps. I gave the players a map of the city of Ottawa basically as ruins with nothing on it, and then I had my map, which was where everything was, and so as they went through the adventures, they would write on their copy of the map. And you can, like, you know, if you want to play a post-apocalyptic adventure in any city in the world, go out and buy a road map, say everything's flattened, and you can draw on it with whatever you want. Uh, I mean, the map is a couple bucks, you're going to mark it up, yay. You know, um, no like no evil creature from the sky comes down if you if you muck with a map. Um, I hope not. Um, uh, you know, like you can do, um, you can create things for, you know, things that you plan on keep using. Mm -hmm. um, but you can also create things that are real one shotty. You know, that are just like here's your your piece de resistance. Um, if you ever want to really ooh and ah people, like if you're running a big D&D campaign and you mostly just sort of do like very simple things, like I had a GM and he, you know, made a 3D model of the final battle terrain and stuff, and he never does this stuff. And so it was like we showed up at the session and there's this huge thing and I'm like, oh no, we're, we're in for this it today. Gonna <laughs> this is going to be a big deal, right? Um, I'm going to jump off what you said about taking the map and drawing on top of it. Um, one of the things that I did with the kids that I worked with, and I don't have the decades of experience that Daniel does, but um, I bring a desire to use glue sticks and felt <laughs> to my gaming. Um, and so I was working with kids a little younger, and I thought it might be nice if they all had sort of a journal to keep. You know, they have everyone has character sheets, and character sheets really control what information you can fit on them. But what if they had a journal for anything else they thought was important? And so we made, we handmade books together as a group at the beginning and they decorated them and over the course of the game those journals filled up with records of the game, drawings of their characters, drawings of cool monsters they saw or didn't see and wish they'd seen. Um, and many of them sat down and drew in the map that we were working on together because um, we were doing a big shared map campaign as well. And working together with them to, to fill these journals up with stuff created this record of the game that made the game feel more important, right? And it's not that it was like intimidating, we couldn't do all the fun, goofy stuff that we did, because we sure did. Um, but that you had something that that you could take away and have a memory with, right? Um, and I think those, can, like taking a map and drawing on top of it, um, having like a collection of like hand-drawn object cards that your GM has been like, oh, you found a really cool treasure chest, there it is, right? Even if you don't keep them forever, they create a little bit of ritual around the game table and around the memory of playing the game that can help people, I think, stay in the zone a little bit more, mm -hmm. in addition to offering that cognitive load break. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's something that, like, that, that tactile experience changes the tone a bit at the table. It's not just all sitting back and being like this. Once you're in there and you're like, what's that? What's that? What's this? I gotta write that down. Give me this. I'm gonna do that. Passing this over. It starts to change. And obviously, we've all heard of board games. We know how board <laughs> games work. Um, and this isn't the same thing in that we're not we're not trying to restrain people's possibility space with these, but we're using them as communication tools. I think you touched on something um, 
uh, really good about the idea of the souvenir. Mm-hmm. That yes. Tracy Hickman once said that you know the the purpose of keeping books after you've read them is that they're souvenirs from the journey you took from reading them. And now we don't always do that. Um, I try to do it like when I go to conventions, like to keep character sheets and stuff like that. But that idea of you know when I go back and look at it, like I'm never going to use this again. But here's all the memories I have yeah. from my character journal and things like that. So the idea of actually making, like hand making them, you know, rather than just, you know, here, everybody take a couple pieces of paper and write your notes down. Like that's, it, it has something outside of the game, completely outside of the scope of the game as well. And I got to say, like a sweet little trick you can do to make something feel important with household supplies is to take three sheets of paper and fold them in half and either staple them on the seam or put a little piece of string around them because then it's a journal that you made, you've made a book, ta-da! And it just feels more significant once it's in that format because we associate that format with like informational authority. The same way that maps, when they look like a map, we're like, oh my God, we're gonna know so much about that. Compared to just somebody being like, so there's like a continent and it kind of goes like this and there's some water, right? And like, I think also one of the things like um, with maps, especially, like I highly encourage whenever I'm working with writers, I'm like, don't answer all the questions. Mm-hmm. Like the the like when I do any of these seven C maps, ultimately the writers have provided me maybe mm, I don't know twelve or fifteen names of importance that are in the text. This isn't a board game though, so every time we have something that's on the map, it doesn't have to tie back to something. And so I highly encourage them to come up with cool names that have have no reference in the cortex. They just are not to be found. Because the mist swamps, it doesn't have to be important. And the whole point is is that when you're running the game and you're running from the thieves and you have to go through the mist swamps, someone's going to make up all sorts of reasons as to why these things exist. Like, maps are, um, and many of these tools are, like, uh, really good role-playing games, players and GMs and whatnot ask each other questions or leading questions, and tools do the exact same thing. You know, what is going on here? Why, why, is, why is there a tunnel under this city that no one seems <laughs> to use? You know, uh, who knows, right? Um, and what, what I also like about maps is that it kind of communicates a sense of freedom to players in role play games, mm-hmm. so that they don't have to go on this linear path because they don't know what's coming next. Mm-hmm. I, my, the game of Dungeon World that I played yesterday, I have a map that I drew in, in one of my notebooks, and I opened it up on the table and I said, I have something planned, but we don't have to do it. This is the map, and you can go anywhere. So if you want to take whatever I've given you off the rails, by all means do so, and I'm prepared to help you do that. And I said, where do you want to start? And they actually picked the starting point on the map, and we did a three-hour campaign from there. And it was kooky, it was fun, it was serious, it, it was it, it evoked all of the emotions. I had to take like three bathroom breaks because I was drinking so much water to catch up. <laughs> but having the map was awesome because it let the players know that they could do anything, but also asking questions like, have you been to the city before? And if you have, what was it like? I love that phrase, leading questions, mm-hmm. and I think that's a really big part of what we're doing. And I think even with the tower in, in Starcrossed, that is a leading question. Right, will you, will you, will you, will it happen? Um, and that uh, that we're trying to sort of guide the players towards what we want to focus this story or this experience on. And it could be huge, it could be an entire world in a map, or it could be something like a tiny little island and be like, there's one castle. Do you want to go to the castle? <laughs> um, do you want to go to the pond of the castle? And 
one of the things that got me thinking about this subject was listening to Alex's interview with Ross Cowman mm -hmm. um, from a few years ago who did the Fall of Magic game on a scroll. And he talked about the overlap between using leading questions to n negotiate with like toddlers uh, and using leading questions to help direct play at a gaming table because there's like a decision paralysis that doesn't feel like freedom when you don't have enough information as a player. Um, where you're like, okay, you're, we can go anywhere in the world, what do you want to do? And if you can't see a list, then you're like, uh, uh, dragon? Or a Is there like a dragon? Yeah. So compared to when we're doing something where like, we can go anywhere on this map, then the options are super clear. And it does take that decision paralysis down, I think in a big way, which then I think really is that sense of freedom. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've been at a con. Would you rather hear, where do you want to go for dinner? Or would you rather hear, do you want to go to the Mexican place or the Indian place? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we go to both? Help me. So with, um, with us about 20 minutes out from the ending, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to go ahead and open it up for people to ask some questions. Yeah, please. And then if we run into a gap with questions, we'll fill it in with more of a, I have some stuff we still have left on the page. Okay. Well, you ever hear uh, about a game having too much physical? The one that comes to mind is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3rd Edition came out and everyone hated it because it looked like a board game. Uh, I think when you're introducing physical components, you just need to think about what is it accomplishing, right? And I do think it's very easy to, especially I think if you're a nervous GM or a first-time GM, then you think that uh, okay, well, I'll just I'll have a lot of pretty stuff at the table, and uh, you know that will be impressive, and I'll have this very carefully arranged terrain, and like do do that, go for it. But it it can't it, it has to serve a purpose, right? And whether it's some of the purposes we've been talking about or something that we haven't touched on, uh, in in your mind, just be thinking, what does this do, right? Like, and if I took this away, how would my game be different? I think that, yeah, there's a possibility that you can narrow their options too much. Um, but it really is a negotiation at the table. Some people love having tactical minis on gridded terrain, and that's really enjoyable. And other people are like, but what? I wanted to leave the town. So. And if you're playing the 40K RPG, you probably like 40K as well. Yeah. It's, yeah. A cool, it's a cool universe. It's, that's kind of how I feel about, how many of you are familiar with Dwarven Forge? Okay. Mm. I, 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 I love their stuff. I don't own any of it. I just like longingly look at their Instagram. <laughs> but it's how I feel about their sets. They're really expensive, like models. Some of them are hand painted, mm -hmm. and you can buy a set, and it gives you enough to make a dungeon, but just the dungeon and nothing beyond it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what's been stopping me from actually dropping a hundred bucks and buying a set because I know that I don't want to lead my players like through this hallway into this beautiful room, but nothing beyond it. I really want to say. I agree with I just that. Want all of their I, stuff, I can't. Though. Um, so, like, I, because I kind of did go out and spend a couple hundred dollars. <laughs> and, I'm also and, and a graduate I, student, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I did. I did get a lot of dwarven forge, but the reality of, of, of a lot of dwarven, and it's really cool. But, 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 um, and I've done, and I've done some big things. And I, usually, what I do with the dwarven forge is, if if the dwarven forge hits the table, you can bet your butt this is the big thing. Yes. But yeah. what I have found the the problem with Dwarven Forge is it takes up a lot of space, and you know when you're done and everybody goes home and it's midnight or one in the morning, you're like crap. I have to put all this shit away. The um, 
But one thing that I have found that is much more practical for a lot of games, especially at cons, is buying really amazing, like acquiring the good little bits of terrain. Cool looking trees, cool doors, cool walls, cool statues. Because every room has stuff in it, and the boundary of that room can very easily be drawn on anything. But if you want to go, okay, like if you come into a room, most adventurers want to know how they can get out of that room. Okay, here's your big door that's important. What's important in this room? Here's the sacrificial pit where the the, <laughs> the dragon maiden is screaming and, um, you know, whatever. And so, or, or like little pieces of terrain to take advantage of or something like that. So I find those little flavor bits can be really helpful. Yeah. Um, you can kind of have too much. Um, you, you can certainly have, like maps can be too busy or overwhelming. Uh, you know, um, you know, the human eye only really picks out, like, we can perceive millions of colors, but we can only really tell the difference between, like, ten. Um, you know, because it, it gets down to, like, it's red, and then that's kind of not red, you know, and, uh, and then you can also, the more complicated you make your visual presentation, the more likely that you're going to run into problems with uh, anyone who has disabilities and doesn't see it exactly the same way. I mean, if you... If you're an illustrator or a map designer, um, you know, at a certain point you may just say, well, I can't do anything for people with cowboy blindness if I want to maintain the original product. And that's true. Sometimes that's the case that you do. But you also have to keep in mind that, you know, 10% of the male population has color blindness and uh, the map where everything, if the two biggest important things in your game interface are red and green, 10% of the human population can cannot play your game. Can I, you know. can I tack on to that for a second? Mm -hmm. So in the game I'm developing, Hydra Hackers, um, one of the mechanics is this Hydra hack where uh, originally it was a bag of tokens that you would draw from. The problem was, just like Mark said, I had graded water in three grades, blue water being pure, green water being recycled, yeah. and red water, um, red water being toxic. <laughs> and when I did tokens, I ran into a huge problem because um, they're red and green tokens. Yeah. And then I was like, well, maybe I could put symbols on them but then you can feel symbols inside the bags, and I ultimately switched uh, to cards mm -hmm. because, from a design perspective, I could still keep the colors, but then I could change all the symbols on the cards so that I could keep the accessibility um, without losing the randomness, which is what I got from using either one. But it is, um, from a design perspective, problematic um, mm -hmm. when you get into um, trying to think about accessibility. Yeah. For the record, I really like Dwarven Forge. <laughs> I just and can't afford it. I'll send you photos of my stuff. <laughs> You're so good. And, 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 and I stick Unfriended. to my comments about function, right? Yeah. What is the function of this? What does this do? And is that the important part of my game? If the function of a, uh, of a physical component is that it brings you joy, and the object of your game is to bring joy, uh, then that is a legitimate function. One of the accessories in Mary Kate and Ashley are these tiny little CDs, and they, they come open. Oh no! <laughs> and like, again, from a certain perspective, that's some unnecessary shit. But I think it's art? wonderful, and it, it's a game that is played to have fun and to be delighted by it. So if it brings delight, that is in service of a core design goal. It's whoever designed this game was basically you, but. I guess I traveled back in time. It's good that actually, for now, people will still recognize the CD. 
Yes. Soon, yeah. Yeah. Soon, soon that artifact is going to disappear. And you can um, totally make things, like I have done things as, as a graphic designer and, and creator of visual stuff. I have gone ridiculous on some games for one shots because I like to do funky stuff. And I've had things that are like, why did I even do this? You know, like, I mean, it, it is a thing. It's a thing of joy, but totally meaningless. And half the table didn't even get the reference. So I was like, oh, this is just for me. Oh, well. You know, like I ran I ran an Aliens, uh, I ran a James Cameron's Aliens game at Gen Con one year. And for anyone who's seen the movie, uh, they have like all the, anytime they interface in that world with like, uh, uh, things that they're reading. It's always on plas transparent plastic with the uh, stuff. So all the characters I had printed on trans hard transparent plastic. Oh my god. Which it sounds really, it, which to <laughs> me was really cool and this was like That's gnarly, but of course you can't see shit. Um, <laughs> so the coolest part, you're like, you have to put it on, you have, immediately have to take a normal plain piece of white paper and put it behind <laughs> it in order to use it. Um, and I mean, there's simple things though. Like if you run a Battlestar Galactica game, you're kind of committed to cut the corners off. Yes, you things. are. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so there's ways you can do that to sort of interface things, but you can totally, you know, go like a bridge too far and be <laughs> like, what am I doing? Why am I here? Right. When your when your prep of your material starts to exceed the prep of the game, you start wondering like. Why am I gluing all this together before the game? Yeah. That's when you do it with your players, and it's a bonding experience that gets everyone excited. I say, having done this with children. Yeah. yeah. Right? I started wearing costumes. Of course. Instead of stuff. Hey, hey. Absolutely. So cool. okay. <laughs> I started wearing costumes because, like, I obviously can't draw. It's kind of fun. You, a, you can draw. <laughs> but make, make, okay. make them make stuff for you. Yeah. <laughs> or, or them, the, company, fun, the family. Yeah. As a fun activity. Do you have any other questions? Yeah. You answered the question I was going to ask. I was, a, I was going to ask about uh, when you're putting too much effort into the prep of things that don't end up having the weight you wanted them to have at the table. But you guys pretty much answered it. Yeah. And then it's just a matter of, of like looking at your, uh, like thinking about it and being like, what is the point of this game? Is this the most important part? Like truly, does this serve the the design goal, my goal, whether as a GM or as a game maker? And if if that's true, then then go for it, right? Like, imagine if I was making Jenga and I was like, man, this is just a bunch of blocks. Like, why am I so focused on this? Like, I mean, it really is part of the game, right? So it's up to you to decide what is important. So like, a, a, one way of answering that in a weird way is also like when you're doing your own creations or like if I do maps, like people are like. Well, how do you do maps of fictional places? And I'm like, okay, so like the only rule of map design is that water flows downhill generally, because we could be playing a fantasy world and there's other weird things. That's it. Um, and if you're thinking about other things, like there's logical consistency in what you're doing, and that's visual creation and stuff you craft for the table. The the biggest rule is internal consistency with the fiction you are creating. Uh, period. That's the thing you have to follow. Um, people are all like. Well, I don't know, how does this map go with uh, plate tectonics? Like, I read an article, I hated it so much. There's an article on tour, and I, I want to write a rebuttal, but uh, I'd be just come out like an angry Canadian. And and it, it, it's all about, like, the, the mountain shapes on the uh, Lord of the Rings maps and how they're not congruent with, uh, like, plate tectonics and things like this. Y'all heard about elves? So here's the thing that I always say to it. I'm not that's saying, if, it look, if you're a geologist and this is what you love, that's cool, okay? Yeah. I, I'm not a geologist, so I don't care. But the other thing is, are we playing a game about plate tectonics? And it, until I'm playing the plate tectonics RPG, it's not important in the least. 
Um, and so you're create the thing that you need to create for the thing that you're creating. The mountains are there because they're dividing two empires, you know, um, and that's what they've been fighting over for a hundred years. And that's what your game is and about. And that's what your game is about. Is that setting where the social thing is just yeah. supported by, the story has to forever be supported by what you bring to the table. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. If, if you have, you know, a pile of Dwarven Forge stuff and it's actually blocking your character's ability to use their special skills or to... to focus on the political machinations of the kobolds in the dungeon you're in, then you're, it's in the way. It's literally physically in the way of the game. But if it's there because you want even your players to have reduced sight lines, like, oh my god, perfect, exactly what you needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it should be consistent with the tone mm-hmm. of your game, right? Yeah. And we talked about that. And that can happen in all kinds of like sometimes really unexpected ways. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a game right now and my prototype is just like a stack of index cards that I hand wrote on um, that are like half scratched out because uh, you just gotta get started sometimes. Um, but totally without thinking, I tossed it in like a little clutch that I have. Um, and it's a game about falling in love with a queen and having no idea about how she feels about you. And I just put it in this bag and was like, it's the right shape. But when I bring it to playtest with people, people are like, oh man, this lovely suede burgundy bag, with, like the falling roses. They're like, oh, it's just like, you know, before when I'm even just explaining the premise of the game before the card, the ugly, ugly cards have come out, um, <laughs> it gives it, it, I can help people buy into the premise and the tone of it. There was a question at the very back. Unusual and preferably cheap sources for your props because, as you've mentioned, not everyone can afford works for. What, what kind of what kind of props? Or do you want to do you want to just bounce around uh, with different props? Dollar store. Dollar store. Yeah. Dollar store. A method dollar store. You can put googly eyes on it and it's whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> I've rated craft stores. Yes, yeah. fully. I um. 3D printers are really widely accessible now. They're in the libraries um, here in Ontario. Yeah, they're in the libraries. So I have access to a 3D printer at the university that I'm at, and it costs me like a dollar fifty for an hour and a half on it or something. So I go and I print off like, I go on Thingiverse and I find some free D&D minis and models. I stick them to the 3D printer. I gauge how much time it takes to to print them, and in three hours I have like. 20 minis, and that's three dollars. Oh you know, Pat Dragon basically does Dungeon Forge, Forge and Forge. Yeah, there's also you Hero Forge, and you can design your own online. Um, what else? The uh, Index Card RPG, the first 100 cards was six dollars on Drive-Thru RPG for the PDF, and I printed them on this for like five bucks. I use a lot of print-on-demand sites that will print on fabric and paper and wood and all sorts of stuff, and I can give you guys specific examples uh, in person in the hall afterwards. Um, but uh, like looking online for print-on-demand uh, is also a great way to get something that's kind of a little bit different. And uh, so like I have these, which are printed on canvas and fairly sturdy. Uh, I've been printing on like a, a kind of a velour fabric, seeing if I want to use that, and then I got this for six bucks, plus shipping, and I feel like I could probably print a map on that, and it would be pretty nice. Heck yeah. Um, and it would feel different from the canvas map. Right? And so then what tonally yeah, like and, and what thematically are you expressing that would be different than yeah. that? Do you know, um, Jen Martin and Adam Robichaud are working on a 
uh, a game called Autumn of the Ancients, which is Fall of Magic in Space. It's extremely good. So it's going to have a map, but it's not going to be a scroll, right? And so they're looking at what is the material that says space. (laughs) So they're printing it on all these sort of different kind of gauzy, sort of different fabrics and seeing, okay, what what really feels right. Seeing like space is one of those things uh, in terms of science fiction is some maps are about the space in between. Space is actually about not the space in between. Space is about the opposite of what people think it is. In, in my mind, because everything that has ever occurred in a science fiction show in space is about a point in space. Um, and occasion, very occasionally it is about the space in between those two points, but it's very easy to go around that point. That's why you don't have to do your space maps to scale. Yes. No, no, no. Yeah. Matter. You're using FTL. The only, the, the, only <laughs> time, the only time you have to do your space maps to scale was when I was super nerdy and I did an entire solar system of Earth and I did everything in relative AU measurements, which is the distance between the Earth and the Sun for travel, and I had everything measured out because I'm a nerd. Um, and uh, we never used it, but it looked cool. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna mention we have five minutes left. So okay. Sure. Want to grab? Any other questions? Yeah. Away from. Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, I, I'm really into maps, and I guess this is a question maybe more for the people that are uh, the map makers of the panel. But uh, I think the biggest difficulty I often have when I'm trying to create a map is I never understand what like what order I should be doing things in, and I feel that maybe it's uh, different for different people. But I, I'm often confused as to whether should I be creating things for my game first and then figure out where they go on a map, or do you think it's better to maybe create a map and then fill that out from there as to oh, what oh, each oh. of these things are? Uh, you can do both. Yeah, um, both. So it, different things happen um, more often as a map designer for other people's ideas. More often than not, they come to me with most of their shit already done, and then I have to correspond a visual composite based on what they're telling me. Um, that was the case with, say, Thea for the very first continent, and so it was mostly like reinterpret vaguely and probably piss off some first edition fans, but that was about all my power over that project. <laughs> In the future projects since then, it's been like, here's our big picture ideas, I draw something, they look at it and go, that's cool, and then they start writing based on that sort of beginning part, and we sort of whirlwind together. Um, what I encourage for like home games anyway is um, draw the part that you care about where the campaign starts and then say give narrative control to all this is why I do my home D&D game and so the other players who are from far flung places of the world I don't care about the other empire but you do because that's where your character's from so tell us all about it and if we ever go there we'll be sure to have you draw some things or bring in that fiction um, the, the there's not um, you know uh, it, it's you do not need to make an atlas of the world unless you're actually physically traveling the entire world. If your game is about the the interchanges between an, an island archipelago, and it's always about that, you never have to make a map beyond that. You can define that with fiction, but you want to make the visual clues for the things that matter. Um, so start with what matters. Um, I, I, I uh, for, for drawing maps, um, start with your coast and go in kind of thing. Um, structurally, sorry if I'm taking a little long, but so structurally, structurally maps in my mind start as kind of like flowcharts and nothing to do with geography. Uh, everything within a place is blob with who they are and there are lines that interconnect these things of, on, on the, the line represents the connection these things have. Is the connection something physical? Is the connection something 
uh, cultural, what have you. Like, are they at war? Okay, well then these two people are over here. And so I do this sort of visually as like circles before I get to anything else. And the thing is, is you can then roll them around because maybe you want to put more of these people or powers together or whatever, and then draw your continents around that and uh, go from there. Um, and always remember the, the golden rule, which is, uh, you know, it's not actually created until it's done. So you can, like, trust me, there's like a hundred versions of this that suck. Um, I love things like the map making process of The Quiet Year. Or yeah, yeah. like the things that are laid out in Jason Lute's Perilous Wilds, where it's a group product, a group project to lay out the map. Um, and those things walk me through a kind of a, a group brainstorming process that's narratively focused, um, that uses rounds of questions and a sense of zooming in and out to allow you to worry about the map, not as one whole intensely detailed object, because maps are really overwhelming at first, but let you and let the players start to be like, well, I really want to go to a volcano. And that volcano is going to have some people living near it. And they're going to have a whole bunch of cool stuff to trade because they live near a volcano. Um, and someone else is like, well, I want to go to a lake. And that lake is going to be cursed. And there's going to be a really creepy forest around it. And then you can collaborate using those things. And I think they help you. Like, what I like about them is they help you even if you're doing them solo. If you're sitting down and just like going through the cards of the quiet year to be like, okay, what else do we need on my post-apocalyptic map? A uh, wreck, something has gone wrong, somebody came in, right? They let you prioritize story stuff over worrying about plate tectonics, um, which certainly if I didn't have help, I would worry about. The too. story is always king, yeah. end of statement. <clears throat> yeah. And with that, we have just a minute left. So before we have to depart, why don't we go down the line and everybody can uh, say where you can be found on the internet. Catch me on Twitter at Muscular Pikachu, or go to my slightly, slightly more professional website, HelloAlexRoberts.com. Uh, yeah, especially if you want to find out about um, Starcrossed or and other stuff that I'm up and to. And listen to. Oh, and listen to the podcast. Backstory Podcast on the One Shot <laughs> Network. <laughs> you, know, you have a giant podcast. Uh, I, I'm. I have a. I, uh, you can check out a portfolio of my work and when I update it of uh, on GreenHatDesigns.com. Um, uh, and uh, I basically live on the Twitter world at slave to the hat, um, and uh, that's me. I am Portable City all over the internet. My website's portablecity.net. I'm at Portable City on Twitter and Instagram and all sorts of places. Uh, find me and say hi. I'm uh, at Daniel H Kwan on all social media platforms. I and. If you want to know more about my archaeological work, my gaming work, you can head to danielhquan.com and dundaswestgames.com. And I also have a podcast. Alex was on it. Danny uh, was on my podcast. Yeah, we did a collab. And so Rachel's been on it like three times. They're it's all called, really good podcasts. called I Curiosity. I on your... You <laughs> want to talk about math, please? Sure. Yes. Uh, it's called See, Curiosity. that's how hard it is to get have... on a podcast. It's not hard. <laughs> I, it, Podcasters I got... are desperate for I'm attention. I'm so desperate. I've had you on my podcast. See, yeah. um, I the also... bar is really low to get <laughs> My show is called up. Curiosity in Focus. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music at curiosityandfocus.com and if you want business cards I've got them yeah, I do also I got a cute pigeon on my good job thank you everyone thank you all so much thank you for being my favorite you liked it and I was